Well, folks, I, I want to lead us in a little reflection into uh, communion today. And as our text, I, I want to look at a, a couple of verses from the beginning of Romans chapter 5. You'll see them on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you wish to. But let me just read these words out from Romans chapter 5, the first two verses from the chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And today, as we prepare uh, to have communion together, I want to just highlight uh, this particular element of the, the first verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to think through, how do you and I gain access to peace and peaceful relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul kicks off that verse saying that we have been justified through faith. This is the, the great unifying theme of all of Paul's writing, that we are justified through faith. Justified and justification, that's such a multifaceted um, idea, such a, a rich theological idea, but at its very, very heart is the sense that for you and I who have called upon the name of Jesus, we've been put into a right-standing relationship with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that we actively take a step towards that is through the exercising of faith. And, and again, faith, it, it's a rich word that, um, depending on where you're standing and your perspective of it, can mean a number of different things, kind of like looking through a prism or putting light through a prism. The same light particle can end up landing in different places. But again, at its very, very heart, faith is simply this. We believe in the promises of God. You'll have heard me say that time and time again, but faith in its most basic and elemental way is simply believing that God will keep his promises. Believing that God, when he promised that he would restore and reconcile all things, including you and I, to himself, if he said it and he's promised it, he will keep it. And if you believe those promises and the promises that have been unveiled through Jesus, then you're exercising faith. And quite simply, the exercising of that faith, Paul says, puts us into a right-standing relationship with God our Father. But he goes on to say, not just that we've been justified, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if you can remember back to last Christmas, we went through an Advent Word series. We, we looked at a number of the key themes of Advent, and one of those themes was peace. And we looked at the different aspects of the, the meaning of the biblical concept of peace. It appears in, in our Bible, in our Greek Bibles, as the word shalom. And you will know that peace in the biblical mindset is not just the absence of enmity, between two warring parties. It's not just the type of peace that you would get perhaps after uh, two nations have been at war with one another and then they cease hostilities. Now, peace does include that. And when the Bible speaks of peace between you and I and God, in a sense, it speaks of the end of hostility 
and hostile relations between people and God. But of course, the Bible has a much richer outlook about what peace means. It's not just the absence of hostility, but it also is about the outworking of a, of a whole and rich and complementary, harmonious relationship between two parties. It's a little bit like you can imagine two nations at war with one another and they declare peace. Not only have they stopped firing bombs at one another, but they have acted together to strike trade deals, for example, to lend one another strength to one another, to actively pursue the prosperity of the other party. It's much richer than just putting down the arms. <laughs> it's about actively working for the benefit of the other party. When I was thinking about how I could explain peace to you guys with a simple metaphor, I, I was reminded of a time when I was a youngster with dreams of being a professional footballer. And um, one of my dreams in part become true when I was about 14, 15 years of age. One of the, the, the professional teams in, in our country wanted to sign me up for their, their youth program. And what it really meant was that I had to switch my current team. Okay, so I played for my local boys team with all my mates, all the guys I went to school with, all the guys who I knocked about with and also played football with. But what I had to do in order to take this step was to move from that team to another team that up to that point, there'd been hostility. They hadn't been friends. They had been opponents. Now, the bad thing for me was that those youth teams still played in the same league. <laughs> and you can see where this is going. I had to swap a group of friends and become friends with guys who had been my opponents. And in doing it, yes, I did make friends with people who had been my opponents, but I also made a new group of enemies, um, which wasn't good news for me. And I had to, a couple of knocks and bumps to, to prove it at the end of the next season. But do you see that idea? Do you see what it means when it comes to having peace with God, he, he, he takes us from one team, a team that was formerly in opposition, and he incorporates us into his team. And so there's both negative and positive consequences. When I think back to that time as well, when I switched teams, um, the, the coaching setup of, of the new club that I, I joined, they wanted to play me in a different position. They felt that I had certain abilities um, and talent that was better suited playing in a, in a different part of the pitch than I currently played. And so they, they put me into a, a new position, not on the right-hand side of midfield, but as an attacking central midfielder. They wanted to make strengths, wanted to, to make use of my great, wonderful ability on the ball. <laughs> my ability to retain possession and put others into play, as well as being able to score um, long-range efforts. Like, I want to finish on time today, so I don't, have, I don't have the time to go into the superlatives of my abilities as a, as a footballer, but you can see it, can't you? <laughs> Anyhow, at first, the move from right-hand side to midfield, the centre midfield, wasn't great. I wasn't playing actually that well, um, because I had to learn a new position. But in time, the guys coached me through it, and I become a better player as a, as a result. And in a sense, that gives us a little bit of a picture of what God does with us when he makes peace with us. He takes us from a team that was formerly his opposition, and he puts us into his team. Now, that's grace enough. 
That's grace enough, isn't it? But not only that, he, he redirects us. He points us in the right direction. He begins to unveil his plans and his purposes in our lives in such a way that we go with the grain of what he always intended for us when he made us in the first place. <laughs> it's a double whammy as such. We don't just get the end of hostilities with God, but he actively directs us into his plans and purposes for our lives individually and his plans and purposes for this whole world. And I think that that is good news. <laughs> I think that's good news for you and I personally. I think that's good news for the world and our witness to the world of God's goodness because, of course, this gospel offering peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is not just offered to an elect few. It's offered to everybody, irrespective of where you've come from, irrespective of what you've done. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is an offering to anybody who wants to take it up. I think that is great, great news. But how has Jesus secured this peace for us? Well, we know that it's through, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. We Christians, well, we put our hope in the future glory, that, that Jesus is going to return to reign and rule on the earth and put things right. But when we look at his death, we, we see a number of things that, that come to the, the forefront. We see that Jesus dies with us. He dies instead of us, and he dies for us. And quite quickly, I just want us to consider each of these three things. Jesus' death was, first of all, the death of a human being. Something that all of us inevitably will encounter, either through the, the death of a, of a loved one, family member, a friend. We, we, all have, we all have tasted of death in that respect, and of course, it comes to us all. And Jesus, in a sense, the, the one God becoming a human being, that's the great story of the Bible, and as mysterious as that may sound, that is what the gospel offers us, the picture of a God becoming human, taking on flesh and blood, becoming a human being like you and I are. And he dies a death. He dies a very human death. There's nothing non-human about the death of Jesus. It wasn't drama or theater. It was real. He ceased to breathe. His body lost life. But not only was Jesus' death the death of a human being, the death that we will die, we also see quite clearly that it was an unjust death. He, he died in his 30s, not deserving death. He was put to death. He just didn't die of natural causes. He was put to death an unjust death. And Jesus isn't unique as a human in that sense. There have been many, many, many unjust deaths in our world and in our history. There's something deeply personal that goes on here because Jesus is dying with the human race. The apostle Peter, well, in one of his sermons, he says this, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. The they that Peter is speaking about is, of course, the collaboration between 
the, the Jewish leadership of the day and the Roman authorities to put him to death in a Roman way, a Roman political way, as it turns out, death on a cross. Crucifixion was reserved for political prisoners, political criminals. Today, what we might call terrorists, perhaps, and Jesus was given that type of death. But of course, we know what happens. And Peter spells it out. God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. All that this malicious collaboration could do on Jesus, could put him to death, and a horrendous and unjust death as it was, they couldn't keep him dead. <laughs> they couldn't keep him in the grave. Yes, they could put him in the grave, but they couldn't keep him in the grave. God raised him on the third day and caused him to be seen. <laughs> what an understatement. God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. But Jesus experienced the death we all die. And in dying, he died with us. We find in him the solidarity of God in our pain. We find in him the solidarity of God that suffers with a, with a cause. Think of that word solidarity for a minute or two. If, um, if you had solidarity with a group of people, you would share their aims. You would labor for their hoped-for outcomes. You would align yourself with their cause with their plight. You would be unified with them. You would, in a sense, share in the same team spirit as they had. Again, when I was thinking about this concept and thinking through a way of maybe um, explaining it personally, again, I think back to the days when I was a, a youngster playing football. And um, on Friday and Saturday nights, there was a youth club in the, in the middle of our estate uh, that had a tuck shop pool, table tennis, the type of thing you would expect. But we also always went out to um, go and play five-a-side football. And at the time, um, a group of so-called friends of mine, they weren't happy with me changing clubs like I just told you about a few moments ago. And so in our kickabouts, they were conspiring with one another to injure me. <laughs> Obviously, they weren't letting me know. But I have a friend, um, a, a guy who has friends in, in school, and I'm still good friends um, with to this, to this day, a guy called Dixie. And he come over to me and he says, listen, I just want you to know there's a couple of lads here and they're planning on hurting you tonight. So in one sense, Dixie was, sh was, was sharing solidarity with me. He was aligning himself not with the malicious cause of my former friends, and he was coming over to the righteous side of, of things <laughs> to, to stand with, with me. And in a sense, he did that just by sharing the information. But he went a step further. That um, particular season in life, he made sure that he was always on my team. Now, now, my mate Dixie, he's a bit of a hard lad. Not the type of guy who throws his weight about, but he had a reputation. He knew how to handle him himself. And um, he, was, he was harder than... I wasn't a hard guy. You know, I was more of a fancy footballer, quick footwork, this or another. He was just an enforcer. Loved nothing more than a meaty challenge. But... In showing solidarity with me, he not only told me of a plot that was trying to lead to my downfall, but he also then come along and he put himself on the same team as me. And he was a little bit of a, like a self-appointed enforcer. If anybody kind of went to go near me to hurt me, he would glare at them or growl at them. And he got me through that season of life without many um, major, major injuries. 
He showed solidarity with, with me. And in a sense, when we look at the death of Jesus, we see God acting in solidarity with the human race, actually. He dies with us. And I think that that's a very, very powerful aspect and element to bring out of the, res- of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus. He dies with us. But not only does he die with us, Scripture tells us that he died instead of us. Now, this aspect of, of Jesus' death that we, that we find in, in Scriptures has become a little bit unpopular, particularly in, in the West. And in many places, it's actively resisted. In fact, in, in some churches, they will actively resist this teaching that Jesus died instead of us. But I think that it needs to be said because it bears out an aspect and a truth of what the Bible says about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Scripture says that we deserve death because we are, we are sinners, each and every single one of us. We, we have conspired against the plans and the purposes of God, and we deserve death because of that. Death is the consequence of our rebellion against God. On the other hand, Jesus comes uh, as a human being. He does not deserve death because he was sinless. But, but we read of this great reversal in fortunes. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The theologians have a word for this doctrine, substitutionary atonement. It's a difficult one to say. Substitutionary atonement. You can probably guess what that means. The word substitution gives it away. I'm replete with football metaphors today, but if you follow football or rugby or many other sports, you'll know that there is a tactic, substitution. One of your players isn't doing too well. You substitute him or her out to put in another player in their position. And in a sense, Scripture says that God did the same thing for us in Jesus. The sinless one becomes sin, takes on the worst of us. And what do we get in return? Will we take on his righteousness and goodness? Wow, what a swap, what a substitution. The apostle Peter in his first letter, he says this, he, that's Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. In some respects, there's something deeply mystical and mysterious that takes place when God somehow substitutes out the worst of us and puts it on Jesus. But, but there's nothing non-physical about it. <laughs> Scripture's quite clear that Jesus bore the burden of our sins in his very body, <laughs> suffered and died in the flesh, bodily, physically. There's no sidestepping this. Why did he do that? Well, so that we might die to sins, that we might die to the worst of ourselves, the worst impulses that are within us. And turn around and live for righteousness. Again, we see the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. We swap our sinfulness for his righteousness. He dies instead of us. And in some respects, Communion, and we're going to celebrate communion today. 
And we're reminded that we are to do this as a regular part of our worshiping life together. It is given to us because it humbles us, each and every single one of us. It serves as a reminder that we are here, that we are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the people of God because of what God in Christ did for us. And that's a great leveler. There's no elect, there's no elites amongst us. Each and every single one of us are here because of what Christ did and because he died instead of us. And again, even that, even that difficult aspect to get our heads around is a cause for celebration and thanksgiving because it is an act of grace. And finally, and in addition to dying instead of us, Jesus also died for us, we are told. His death procures and it wins benefits to you and I. And namely, it gets us three benefits at least, many, many more on top. But first of all, the elimination of guilt before God. (laughs) When we come to take communion today, we come mindful that there are things that ordinarily would cause us to be guilty before God. And communion comes to us as a grace because in moments like this, we're encouraged to examine our lives, examine the stuff that's not in keeping with the plans and purposes of God for our life. But in order not to make us feel guilty, but to remove the guilt from us and a foretaste of one day when all guilt will be removed permanently. (laughs) So Jesus has won for us, for us, the elimination of guilt before God and with it, the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever received forgiveness from a wronged party? Has anybody ever, ever, ever done that or had to do that? I hope it's not just me. But when you've done it and you've received forgiveness, do you, do you, get, you, know, do you know that good feeling that comes with it? Yeah, it's not... It's, it's in acknowledging the stuff that's gone wrong. Yeah, you can't ignore it, but just acknowledging the fact, not trying to dress it up, not trying to explain it away, but just simply presenting it for what it is and was and receiving forgiveness. There, that, that is, I've had to do that at least a couple of times in my life. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. But that's the type of place that we live out in relationship to God. Forgiveness of sins. And what comes with it, again, isn't just the ceasing of hostility, but as we thought about at the beginning, a peaceful relationship with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to ask the servers if they would join me at the front as we now come to the time where we're going to to take communion. But we do so as those who have been granted peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps we could just read those verses together as a way of just preparing our hearts and our minds to to step forward and to, to take off communion together.
And as we read, being thankful for the peace that has been secured for us, being thankful that it, that it, that it, come, at a, that it come at a price, that it was Jesus who has won this for us by dying with us, by dying instead of us, and by dying for us. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, well, he took a cup, pouring wine, sharing it with his disciples, saying, well, this is my blood that has been shed for you. It stands for a new arrangement between God and people. Take of it and drink. And in like manner, he took he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body that is broken for you. Take of it and eat. And so we invite you now to those who have made peace with God. Well, come and share in communion. If you haven't yet done that, but you want this peace with God, well, now is the time to simply accept the, the truth of, of these scriptures that a peace with God has been won for you. And if that is your story, then join us in communion together. And as you are ready, I invite you to come to the front, take of bread, take of wine, and eat and drink in the presence of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.